I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. An ice axe used in a daring rescue at the top of the world. You're up there above 26,000 feet in an arena we call the death zone. A bulletproof limousine that saved the president. All of a sudden, gunshots ring out. And a space module that's at the heart of a terrifying accident. He hears the words no spaceman wants to hear. Uh Uh-oh. I'm Don Wildman. Join me on a journey across the United States as we go deep into the vaults of the nation's most revered institutions, unearthing wondrous treasures from the past, extraordinary artifacts, and bizarre relics, each with a shocking story to tell and a secret to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. West Palm Beach, Florida is known for its beautiful marinas, tropical weather, and stunning views. But tucked away behind a row of hedges inside the door of this unassuming home is a curious collection of electrical oddities, including antique generators and the oldest known x-ray machine. This is the -the turn-of-the-century electrotherapy museum. It's quite different than most places because we actually have functioning machines that people can touch and pick up and will even turn on from time to time. But as curator Jeff Bahari knows, one relic serves as a reminder of a mysterious contraption that will never be demonstrated again. We have an 8x10 glass plate negative of the last known photograph of one of the most impressive pieces of technology from the 1800s. It was once believed that the apparatus captured on this negative would revolutionize science, technology, and industry. This invention seemed too good to be true. What was this strange machine? And what happened to the man who invented it? 1874. An industrial revolution is sweeping the world, propelled largely by steam power. But an elite group of scientists, including Thomas Edison, Nikola Tesla, and George Westinghouse, are locked in a race to become the first to harness a new energy source, electricity. 
And in the midst of this fierce competition, an unknown inventor emerges, John Worrell Keeley. On November 10th, 1874, Keeley invites a group of businessmen to this laboratory, dazzling them with a prototype of a machine that he says will usher in a technological revolution. He would walk up to his engine and simply add a bit of water. And within moments, a wheel connected to the machine begins to spin. Keeley proudly proclaims it's powered by a mysterious form of energy. Keeley harnessed something he was calling the force. It was a, an energy form in nature that was previously undiscovered and not really well defined. This force was something that only he knew the secret of. With the proper funding, Keeley says he can produce the motor on a much larger scale and predicts that the force will one day replace steam as the primary power behind factory equipment, trains, and ships. The amazed businessmen eagerly invest in a machine that they believe will make them rich. For a lot of people, this was the goose that laid the golden egg. Here is a man who had this incredible power of harnessing these forces of nature that no one could see. As word spreads about this extraordinary invention, money starts pouring in. At its peak, the Keeley Motor Company is worth an astounding $5 million. People had invested, in some cases, their, their life savings into this technology. People invested their faith in this man. But as the months and then years go by, Keeley fails to produce a model that can be mass-produced, and his shareholders grow increasingly impatient. They were ready to have his promises come true and to suddenly replace all of the other energy forms on the planet with this new technology. A lot of times, Keeley Motor people would show up at random to see it operate. And Keeley would say, oh, no, it's not ready to be shown. We're making some improvements on it. And for a lot of people, this arose a lot of suspicion towards Keeley. Then, in November 1898, investors received news that puts the entire endeavor in peril. John Worrell Keeley is dead. It seems he's taken the secret of the Force with him to the grave. Desperate to unravel the mystery behind the force that powered Keeley's machine, shareholders turned to the inventor's close friend and associate, Thomas Kinraid. Kinraid was probably petrified at that point in time. No one expected Keeley to become ill and die, and least of all of this man who was suddenly expected to explain it all to the public. Kinraid accepts the challenge and arrives at Keeley's lab to examine the apparatus. He analyzes the machine and takes photographs to document his investigation. And the only surviving glass negative from that quest is today part of Jeff Bahari's collection. Those photos were never published, and I discovered them in 2005, still in Kinraid's home over 100 years later. Kinraid ships the motor to his hometown of Boston and continues his investigation for months, but to no avail. So impatient stockholders decide to take matters into their own hands and search Keeley's Philadelphia lab for any clues the inventor may have left behind. What they find shocks the men who invested their money and trust in the scientist. Certain investors in the company and stockholders and a team of scientists from Philadelphia ripped open the walls and found tubes and hoses that run up to the rest of the equipment. There was also found a water motor, and this motor was run from an outside power source and would have been completely undetectable for people. These elements of Keeley's motor had been hidden during the prototype's original demonstration 25 years earlier. Now, the once eager investors realized that the Keeley motor was little more than an elaborate hoax. 
After decades of waiting and millions of dollars invested, the shareholders lose everything. The victims of a con man's tales of a mysterious power source and a machine that was too good to be true. Today, in Jeff Bahari's turn-of-the-century electrotherapy museum, this photographic negative is the only surviving proof of a stunning act of deception at the dawn of the electrical age. Dearborn, Michigan, home to the Henry Ford Museum, a shrine to mass production and the automobile's integral place in American culture. But for curator Matt Anderson, there's a particular item inside this 450,000-square-foot museum of motoring that serves as a physical reminder of an event forever seared in his memory. Seeing it was really pretty amazing because it was so directly associated with a perilous moment in American history. And it was just a, a powerful feeling to come face to face with something like that. And although it's based on something that, that anyone could buy, the artifact's been very heavily modified for a very specific purpose. It's a sophisticated vehicle outfitted with the state-of-the-art technology of its day and equipped with bullet-resistant metal and glass designed to protect one very important passenger. The artifact is a 1972 Lincoln Continental limousine, which has been specially modified to transport the President of the United States. And at a pivotal moment in history, its armor was truly put to the test. What part did this limousine play on the very day an armed assassin tried to kill the nation's president? March 30th, 1981, 69 days after assuming office, President Ronald Reagan finishes giving a speech to labor unions at the Washington Hilton Hotel. After Reagan finished his speech, he had to walk several feet to get from the building to his limousine. Reagan exits the Hilton and passes within a few feet of a small crowd of people. As the president walks closer to the car, all of a sudden, gunshots ring out. A total of six altogether. As the first shots are fired, Secret Service Special Agent Jerry Parr shoves the president toward the limousine. Really remarkable thing about this when you watch the videotape is how quickly it all took place. First bullet hit Press Secretary James Brady in the head. The second bullet hit Washington police officer Thomas Delahanty in the neck. The third shot went clear of the limousine and struck a building on the other side of the street. And then Agent Tim McCarthy turns to face the gunfire, and in doing so, he's actually struck in the abdomen by the fourth shot. The fifth shot uh, hit the window of the limousine, which cracked some of the bulletproof glass there, but it didn't go through. And then it was the sixth shot that struck the passenger side of the vehicle. Just moments after the shooting began, the limousine whisks Reagan away to safety, leaving a crowd of frantic law enforcement officers in its wake. And there were three people wounded on the sidewalk. There was a pile of officers and agents trying to hold the suspect down. Police apprehend the gunman, 25-year-old John Hinckley Jr., who, it is later revealed, has a bizarre obsession with the actress Jodie Foster and believes that the only way to get her attention is to assassinate the president. Miraculously, it appears as if Hinckley missed Reagan completely. As soon as uh, the limo sped away, Agent Parr was looking for either evidence of a gunshot wound or for blood on his hands, and he didn't see any blood, and he thought, well, you know, terrific, we've literally dodged a bullet. But as the vehicle races toward the White House, 
it becomes clear that something is very wrong. Reagan begins complaining of, of difficulty breathing and, and comments something to the effect that he thought Parr had maybe broken his rib when he pushed him down into the vehicle. Reagan starts coughing and eventually coughs up blood. Special Agent Parr is faced with a crucial decision. Do they continue on to the White House or do they get to the nearest hospital? It will mean the difference between life and death. On March 30th, 1981, an armed assassin tries to kill President Ronald Reagan. As a bullet speeds toward the commander-in-chief, a Secret Service agent shoves him behind the door of the presidential limousine, and everyone thinks Reagan is safe. But it becomes clear that something is very wrong. How did this happen? As the limousine races away, Secret Service agent Jerry Parr must make a critical decision. You want to go to the hospital or back to the White House? Roger, we want to go to the emergency room of George Washington. When Reagan arrives at George Washington University Hospital, doctors begin a frenzied search for the source of the president's suffering. Everyone was operating under the assumption that he had, in fact, broken a rib, and that rib perhaps had punctured a lung. But as doctors cut the president's suit from his body, they are stunned by what they discover. Just under Reagan's left arm is a small slit of a wound. And ultimately, they determined that that slit was caused by a bullet. But how did the bullet manage to hit the president if he was already safely behind the limousine's door when Hinckley fired? The answer to this mystery lies on the surface of this armored vehicle. A ballistics investigation reveals that Hinckley's final shot hit the vehicle and then took a drastic and potentially deadly turn. Hinckley's sixth shot uh, hit the side of the car and then ricocheted off and went between a very narrow gap between the uh, body of the car and the door itself. After passing through that narrow gap, the bullet sliced into Reagan's body, grazing his rib and lodging in his lung, stopping just one inch from his heart. After a nearly two-hour surgery, Reagan makes a remarkably speedy recovery and returns to the White House just weeks later. Officer Thomas Delahanty and Agent Tim McCarthy two members of the security detail also recover from their wounds. But the president's press secretary, James Brady, who was shot in the head, is left permanently disabled. Today, this Lincoln Continental limousine stands at the Henry Ford Museum as a silent witness to the rapid chain of events that unfolded on the day America almost lost its 40th president. Philadelphia boasts some of America's most prestigious cultural institutions, from the Museum of Art to the Franklin Institute. It's also home to the country's oldest natural history museum, the Academy of Natural Sciences. And here, the Academy's Yule Sales Stewart Library houses a collection of rare and historic books. But senior fellow Robert Peck knows that one 19th century volume tells a mysterious story that's almost as epic as the book itself. It's of enormous size. This is something like 39 by 28 inches, the biggest paper that could be made at that time. On each of its 435 pages, life-sized paintings of hauntingly beautiful animals stare back at readers. And every feather, beak, and talon is depicted in meticulous detail. So here it is, John James Audubon's Birds of America. 
This encyclopedic book is filled with images of every bird species from the exotic to the familiar. But it's also filled with controversy. What's the truth behind Audubon's mystery birds? 1838, American naturalist, painter, and avid outdoorsman John James Audubon puts the finishing touches to an ambitious project to paint every bird species in America. The work has taken him over 13 years of exhaustive travel, observing, hunting, and then bringing wild birds to his New York studio. There, Audubon would pose each specimen and paint it with exacting detail. In order to create any one of these plates, Audubon would invest huge amounts of time. It would be not just a question of hours, but days and sometimes weeks to get to a place, find the particular bird, to, to collect it, to bring it back and sketch it. This was a man driven, obsessed by birds and by painting. And when the general public finally sees the collection, Audubon's book is hailed as a triumph of art and science. But as the decades pass, questions arise about its accuracy. Every so often, someone would look at a plate and say, I don't recognize that bird. What is it? And so, slowly, a a group of mystery birds emerged. A mutated penguin. A creamy white duck with patches as dark as a raven. Vivid, multicolored parakeets. A simple brown sparrow with a red neck. And a majestic sea eagle. There are at least 12 bird species in the Birds of America that simply don't exist. Skeptics wonder if Audubon was merely mistaken or if the birds were products of his imagination. Whether these birds ever existed is a question. So it became a great puzzle for amateur bird watchers to try to solve this mystery. After further study, zoologists are able to offer a very simple explanation for the presence of some of these birds in Audubon's book. Six, including the great auk and the Carolina parakeet, went extinct in the years following publication. These are all iconic, famous birds teetering on the brink of extinction when Audubon painted them. With half of Audubon's mystery solved, experts turn to the remaining six birds. Four seem to defy any definitive explanation. The carbonated swamp warbler, the small-headed flycatcher, Cuvier's kinglet, and the blue mountain warbler. There is no other evidence that the specimens that Audubon collected ever existed, leading scientists to theorize as to how he, and only he, could have discovered these creatures. They may be hybrids, birds that had bred together to create an unusual-looking specimen, or possibly some sort of genetic fluke, a pigment change in a bird can, can shift its colors from green to blue. This explanation has long satisfied critics, but the last two birds in Audubon's book would prove to be an almost impossible mystery to unravel. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. 
With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's 1838. John James Audubon completes a giant book cataloging every bird species in North America. Bird lovers and the general public praise its lush artwork and attention to detail. But scientists soon question the existence of a handful of birds depicted in those oversized pages. Some, they claim, went extinct. Others may have been genetic flukes. But identifying the final two birds proves to be the most perplexing mystery of all. So what's the real story behind Audubon's masterpiece? The encyclopedic volume, Birds of America, is filled with new species, many of which Audubon discovered and named himself during his expansive travels. One of the birds Audubon thought was a new species, he gave a name to Morton's finch. Audubon's book describes the creature as small, with an ash-gray head, blackish-brown tail feathers, and a white band across each wing. Everyone thought this was fine, until naturalists began asking, where is this finch? In Audubon's text, he said it came from Northern California. But it takes years of searching before the bird's true identity is finally discovered. The specimen was actually uh, not a new species, but a bird that was quite common in Chile. So how could a South American bird make it into a book created to catalog only the birds of North America? The answer lies in the way Audubon created his masterpiece. By the autumn of 1837, the pressure was mounting for him to complete his landmark series, already over a decade in the making. Audubon found it increasingly difficult to keep up the exhaustive pace of travel, hunting, and painting. And so he desperately began looking elsewhere for specimens to paint. So he turned to fellow avian enthusiast John Kirk Townsend for assistance. John Kirk Townsend was a member of the Academy of Natural Sciences who was almost as passionate about birds as Audubon. Audubon offered to buy birds from Townsend's extensive collection. He was desperate to get that material. He wanted those birds so that he could incorporate them into his book. 
But what Audubon didn't know is that Townsend did not limit his collecting to North American species. When Audubon received the shipment of birds, a tiny sparrow from South America was erroneously mixed in. It's a very easy mistake to be made. Audubon assumed it had come from California uh, when it was actually a South American species, and a fairly common one at that. With the identity of Morton's finch solved, ornithologists turned their attention to the final mystery bird, the Washington eagle. It was not a bald eagle. It was not a golden eagle. It was a unique new species that he named in honor of George Washington. This was the ultimate national symbol. For years, Audubon claimed this majestic bird to be another new species that he discovered. But experts were never able to confirm his findings. Did it exist? We don't really know. Some theorize that the Washington Eagle is so rare that it is still out there in the wild, waiting to be rediscovered. Others believe that Audubon may have discovered this bird shortly before it went extinct, leaving him the sole witness to its existence. It may be the only explanation for how the painter could have captured such stunning beauty and detail. Now, nearly 175 years since the book's completion, this remarkable bird's true identity may never be determined. There are some that we simply can't explain and and probably never will be able to. In spite of this enduring mystery, John James Audubon's The Birds of America, here in the collection of the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia, remains a cherished and breathtaking volume and one of the most spectacular books ever published. The frontier town of Golden, Colorado is a destination for travelers craving beautiful scenery and outdoor adventures. And no place gives visitors a better taste of that adventure than the Bradford Washburn American Mountaineering Museum. This institution showcases examples of innovations in climbing technology and even a scale model of Mount Everest. But within its collection is one small artifact that's easy for visitors to overlook, an ice axe. You know, when you walk up to the axe, it looks like any other wooden ice axe from days gone by. But as historian and climber Phil Powers knows, this axe played a crucial role in an event so harrowing that its story is now embedded in mountaineering lore. It's a tale of incredible courage and survival against the odds in one of the harshest environments on Earth. This was Pete Schoening's ice axe, and he was the youngest member of the 1953 American expedition to K2. What role did this axe play in a tragic and still unsolved mystery? 1953. For centuries, the world's highest peaks had long been seen as insurmountable. But that changes on May 29th, when Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay reach the summit of Mount Everest. Now, Hillary's rival, American physician and climber, Dr. Charles S. Houston, sets his sights on the 28,000-foot-tall K2. K2 is the second highest mountain in the world, and it's been known as the Savage Mountain. For every four or maybe five people who summit on K2, one has died. And that kind of a ratio makes K2 quite notorious in the realm of high mountains. Houston assembles an experienced team for this dangerous expedition. Among them are George Bell and Art Gilkey, both scientists and avid mountaineers. And the youngest member is 25-year-old Pete Schoening. They were all strong climbers, but Pete sort of stood out as the young gun on the team, if you will. On June 26, 1953, the team leaves base camp in northern Pakistan and begins their ascent of K2. 
Over the next month and a half, they make excellent progress and by August 1st are within striking distance of the summit. But the next day, a severe and sudden storm surrounds them, and they have no choice but to hunker down in their tents at a high and potentially deadly elevation. You're up there above 26,000 feet in an arena we call the death zone, where there's just simply not enough air pressure for you to survive very long. The human body doesn't function up there. Finally, after six long days, there's a break in the storm, and the team can't believe their luck. This was a, a huge prize. To be in position to climb K2 and have good weather is a very, very rare thing. So they exited those tents, thinking, now we have our shot. Then all of a sudden, the character of the trip changes entirely. Art Gilkey collapses, complaining of pain in his leg. Dr. Houston examines his friend and fellow climber, but the prognosis isn't good. He diagnoses him with thrombophlebitis. And that's an ailment where you've got this blood clot in your leg, and, and just moving could dislodge it and send that clot to your lung or to your brain and kill you on the spot. They shift, sort of on a dime, from this hopeful optimism about getting to the top of this mountain that they've dreamed of for decades in some cases, to we've got to save our friend Art. But a new storm is fast approaching. If they leave the safety of their tents and attempt to bring Art back to base camp, K2, the Savage Mountain, could kill them all. It's 1953. A team of American mountaineers is attempting to summit the world's second highest and some say deadliest mountain, K2. But when one climber named Art Gilkey collapses with a life-threatening blood clot in his leg, the expedition becomes a rescue mission. With a storm brewing and time running out, can the team save their fellow climber and themselves? Art Gilkey's condition is deteriorating fast. It's a harsh reminder of what will kill the men if they stay at the high altitude known as the death zone. And with the weather growing worse, the team is faced with a difficult choice. Houston is able to recognize that Claude has moved and that Gilkey's condition has moved from very bad to suddenly critical. They realize that whether the weather is good or not, they've got to get down. They cannot stay where they are. The team loads Gilkey into a makeshift stretcher, and the men, tied together in pairs, begin their descent. Pete Schoening, who's tied to Gilkey, lowers him with a mountaineering technique called belaying using his axe, the very one now on display at the American Mountaineering Museum. He's placed an ice axe, the ice axe, behind a rock, and he's run the rope around his body and around the ice axe so that the friction of the rope can hold a person. But with the wind whipping around them, catastrophe strikes. George Bell, who's one of the highest people on this snow slope, slips. That fall sends Bell and his partner sliding down the mountain. They both start to fall together with a rope between them. And that rope tangles against Art Gilkey. So pretty soon, all six climbers, including Art, are falling down this snow slope. All except for Pete Schoening. As he sees his partners all begin to fall to their death, 
He throws his weight onto the ice axe, jamming it in more deeply and making that belay secure enough to hold them all. Pete Schoening's quick thinking and the strength of this wooden ice axe saves his team from a 6,500-foot fall and certain death. Schoening hangs on to his axe for dear life as the men untangle themselves. Houston hears Gilkey, who's suspended over an ice gully, cry out, a reassuring sign that he's still alive. Moments later, Houston and two members of the expedition climb down to retrieve Art Gilkey. And as they arrive, there's no Art. He's gone. The harsh conditions of the mountain make finding Gilkey impossible, and all they retrieve are pieces of his gear. Five days later, on August 15th, the remaining members of the expedition reach base camp, frostbitten, but alive. A haunting mystery remains. What happened to their injured friend? There's two or three things that could have happened to Art Gilkey. One is that there's lots of snow on the mountain. Some of that snow came loose in an avalanche and swept him away. Others offer a theory that the ropes that held Gilkey failed, sending him to his death. But Houston and his fellow mountaineers have another explanation. But the one theory that I think holds the most interest is whether Art actually reached up and pulled those ice axes out of the snow and ice himself, sending himself to his own death to preserve the opportunity for his partners to more easily save themselves and get down the mountain. Did Gilkey sacrifice himself so that his friends could return home alive? It's a mystery that we'll never know the answer to. But the bravery of Pete Schoening and the members of the 1953 expedition is without a doubt. And this ice axe, the physical symbol of that courage, is on display here at the Bradford Washburn Mountaineering Museum in Golden, Colorado. Life-sized replicas of Pennsylvania's natives and early settlers. A collection of 19th century cannons, muskets, and weapons. These items and more can be found at one of Pittsburgh's premier cultural institutions, the Heinz History Center. But within the museum's archives is a collection of 66 tiny lead munitions that tell the story of a tragic day in this region's history. These small, lethal orbs are a powerful reminder to President Andy Masich that it isn't always the largest weapons that cause the most harm. This mini-ball never made it to a battlefield, but it caused the deadliest day among civilians during the Civil War. So if these bullets were never fired from a gun, what part did they play in one of the Union's deadliest tragedies? September 1862. The Civil War has been raging for over a year. With Confederate troops marching north, Pittsburgh residents are anxious. People were nervous about a Confederate invasion. Then fortifications were constructed on the hills around the city. One possible target for the Southern soldiers is Pittsburgh's Allegheny Arsenal. There, a large staff of civilians work producing the munitions vital to the Union Army. Among the Arsenal workers are hundreds of women and girls. Because of their nimble hands and their ability to work with thread and small objects, they're hired to roll cartridges. To assemble these lethal packages, 
Workers place musket balls and bullets, just like these, into paper rolls and top them off with gunpowder. The idea was that the soldier would tear the tail off with his teeth, then pour the contents into the musket, ram it down, and then fire it at the enemy. As each day's work progresses, the floor becomes coated with a fine dusting of gunpowder, which must be meticulously cleaned to avoid an accidental explosion. The girls swept three times a day just to make sure that the gunpowder didn't accumulate. On September 17th, just before 2 p.m., a delivery man in a horse-drawn carriage pulls up in front of the workshops with a fresh load of gunpowder. But as he hauls the barrels inside, he notices a wave of bright orange flames running across the ground beneath his wagon wheels. Then, suddenly, an explosion rips through the arsenal's main factory building. Two more massive blasts tear through remaining workshops, igniting 125,000 cartridges and 175 rounds of ammunition, including these very bullets at the Heinz History Center. People found pieces of munitions, like the ones we have in the collection, scattered nearly half a mile away. Hours later, the true horror of the catastrophe sinks in. 78 people, almost all women and young girls, are dead. So what caused the explosions? Were they the result of a deadly accident? Or was this a deliberate act of Confederate sabotage? On September 17, 1862, Pittsburgh's Allegheny Arsenal is rocked by three fiery blasts. Scores of workers, mostly young women and girls producing ammunition for Union troops, are killed in the explosions. So what happened at Allegheny Arsenal? Could it have been Confederate sabotage? It's September 19th. Two days have passed since a key weapons supply center for the Union Army was leveled by a series of explosions. It was the worst day for civilian deaths in the history of the Civil War. Horrified survivors are left to wonder about the tragedy's cause and immediately suspect that Confederate sympathizers were involved. But some point the finger closer to home. Just weeks before, some boys were fired for playing with matches and smoking cigars around the arsenal. Maybe they wanted to get back at their bosses. Or perhaps it was the female arsenal workers themselves who inadvertently ignited gunpowder residue on the ground. Their dresses were worn with crinolines. Those silk and wool skirts could have created a static charge, just as you do walking over a carpet and then touching a knob or a table to get that little spark. As rumors fly, a coroner's jury is tasked with investigating the cause of this calamity. And 10 days after the deadly blast, they arrive at a shocking conclusion. The coroner's inquest determined that a horseshoe might have sparked the gunpowder that ignited the conflagration. The theory goes that the delivery man's horse, stamping its foot against the cobblestone road, sent up a spark with its iron shoe. That spark ignited the excess powder that the workers had swept out of the factory directly onto the street. But with no witnesses and no conclusive evidence, 
The debate about the accident's true cause rages on to this very day. Whatever the truth, these musket balls, recovered after the explosion and on display here at the Heinz History Center, serve as a small reminder of the victims of a tragic disaster. Glider planes, fighter jets, and strange aerial novelties adorn Seattle's Museum of Flight. But there is one giant relic on display without wings. It's 28 feet long and 14 feet in diameter. It has a strange waffle pattern in the aluminum walls of it and has handrails that, if you could float around it, might come in real handy. Museum educator Ron Hobbs can attest that this modern-day marvel played a central role in a thrilling life-and-death outer space mission. It's a reminder that even the impossible happens sometimes. This is a life-size model of the Destiny Space Module. 2001. The International Space Station, otherwise known as the ISS, has been in orbit for three years. Every year, new modules are added to expand its capabilities. And on February 7th, NASA's newest addition is ready for takeoff. It's called the Destiny. The Destiny module cost almost a billion and a half dollars to build and weighed about 16 tons at launch. Destiny will serve as both a new control center for the station and the primary laboratory for American astronauts. If there was a malfunction in Destiny once it arrived there, it could really set back the International Space Station program probably for years. Go from eight engine start. Four, three, two, one, zero, and liftoff of Space Shuttle Atlantis. At 6.13 p.m., NASA's Space Shuttle Atlantis blasts off from Kennedy Space Center. It carries five astronauts and a billion and a half dollar payload. And for the next couple days, the mission proceeds exactly according to plan. The Destiny is removed from the cargo bay of the space shuttle and is joined to the growing International Space Station. And spacewalkers are successful in activating a number of the systems aboard Destiny. But on February 10th, an unexpected accident occurs. Astronauts Robert Kerbeam and Tom Jones are outside the spacecraft connecting cooling lines, which are critical to keeping the sensitive systems aboard the spacecraft functioning. Tom Jones is working out of sight of uh, Bob Kerbeam when he hears the words no spaceman wants to hear. Uh-oh. What Jones sees next is unimaginable. Snowflake-like particles are streaming from Kerbeam's work area. We're having a hard time getting F1 off with the leak on the F3. But they're not made of water. They consist of Destiny's vital cooling substance, ammonia. If too much of the ammonia flies out of containment, it's not going to have its cooling fluid, and the Destiny module will be susceptible to overheating, which could destroy uh, the scientific instruments inside. And that's not all. If the module overheats the astronauts' life support systems could fail. If the leak isn't fixed immediately, the entire expedition could be doomed. In February 2001, five astronauts embark on a mission to attach a high-tech laboratory called the Destiny Module to the International Space Station. But while astronaut Bob Kerbeam is working on the cooling lines, 
an unexpected crisis occurs. Ammonia, critical to cooling the spacecraft, begins leaking, endangering the lives of the astronauts. Now, time is running out to save the crew. Astronaut Robert Kerbeam springs into action. He immediately begins pulling down on a locking device called a baler bar in order to cut off the flow of ammonia. But the locking device is frozen and won't move due to the cold of outer space. According to Bob Kerbeam, it felt like an eternity uh, that he was pulling on that baler bar. Finally, after several minutes, the bar gives and the ammonia stops streaming out. It appears the leak is fixed, but Kerbeam isn't out of the woods just yet. The ammonia has congealed an inch thick onto a spacesuit. If he goes back inside the module and lets the ammonia evaporate into the air supply, the toxic gas could kill the entire crew. Kirby must rid himself of this life-threatening chemical immediately. He radios mission control for help, and the engineers instruct his partner Jones to wipe the deadly chemical off his spacesuit. But he can't get rid of it all. So mission control commanders devise a rather unconventional solution. They instruct Kerbeam to stay outside the shuttle for one full orbit of the Earth to burn off the remaining liquid. The crew can only hope and pray that the plan works. With Kerbeam positioned in the sun, the sun's heat evaporates the ammonia off his suit. Amazingly, the plan succeeds and the crisis is averted. Or so the astronauts think. All this time, Destiny doesn't have a functioning cooling system and it's sitting out in the sun, and the temperature inside got up to over 100 degrees. If too much ammonia has been lost during the leak, the cooling system will not reactivate, and the module is rapidly heating up. If it gets any hotter, Destiny's sensitive computers will fail. Making sure the system has enough ammonia to operate is now a top priority. The temperature rise inside Destiny is an emergency, and so the astronauts had to scramble to check and make sure all the subsystems are working correctly. But to everyone's surprise and relief, 95% of the ammonia is still intact. And within less than an hour, the cooling system is fully functioning, reducing the temperature and saving the crew. Astronauts finish their duties successfully and head home. And today, at the Museum of Flight, this life-sized model serves as a reminder that although man continues to explore the final frontier, he's far from conquered it. From a controversial motor to an armored limousine, a simple ice axe to space-age technology. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum. <laughs>